HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, jumping in to tell you about this week's episode of Meat and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food roundup. This week, we're introducing you to some amazing women taking a stand. So often, being sexually harassed feels like a loss of control, and so I wanted to have these very tangible guides to say, here's what you can do. Others are pushing for more diversity at major food industry events. I still feel really determined to do you know, whatever I can to help shift that and in a direction that's not just more diverse, but more equitable. We also have a report on that summer business staple, the lemonade stand. The lemonade stand might be the purest form of starting a business. Low overhead, easy to get into, and requires little experience or special equipment. Don't miss Meat and Three, your weekly 15-minute food news roundup from HRN. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Search M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. And thanks, as always, for listening. To all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, June 6, 2018. This is the 179th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind the scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a true leader in our industry, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Later, we will have my speed round game. For industry news this week, you will hear my coverage from the James Beard Foundation Awards in Chicago. I have a couple exclusive interviews, so stay tuned for that. And then we will end the show with my solo dining experience and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. Today's tip is to raise the bar. Always put forth your best effort and lead by example. Never dumb yourself down to try to fit in or act as if you don't know what you know. 
being the person in the room who has the answers and is a wonderful thing, as knowledge is power. So remember to always bring your A game as it will help bring the best in others. That is my tip today. Now, I'm super excited and very honored to have my guest here in the studio with me. It is Mitchell Davis. He is the executive vice president of the James Beard Foundation. He is also a cookbook author, food journalist, and scholar with a PhD in food studies from New York University. Mitchell frequently writes about restaurants, and he has written four cookbooks, including The Mint Chef and Kitchen Sense. He is also the Academy Chair of London's London-based World's 50 Best Restaurants Ranking Program, and he's known around here for having hosted his heritage radio show, Taste Matters. Yay. Yay. And we met at NYU. <laughs> we, yes, that's how we, we met. You're one of the first people I met in the industry at NYU, food studies program. You were my teacher. There you go. And, and you're excelling. <laughs> you're, you're surpassing <laughs> the, the, the professor as things should be. So excited to be back at Heritage Radio. Really fun to be here and sitting on this side of the interview mic. <laughs> yeah, well, it's super cool to have you and be interviewing you. And I always start out with my guests with their background. And I was thinking before the show. So I did. I met you about 20 years ago. But you... Ever since I've known you, you've been with the James Beard Foundation. I know. It's so <laughs> funny. It's been 20, this is my 25th year, which is so hard to believe. Incredible. Mostly because I can't believe I'm old enough to have been anywhere 25 years. But, yeah. but it's, you know, as an organization and also as an organization in a particular industry that has evolved so much over that time, it's never, it's never gotten old. It's never gotten boring. I mean, when you look at what's happened in those 25 years in food, in, among chefs, in, um, you know, in the explosion of interest and enthusiasm and, um, and passion and commitment to food around the country and around the world. It's just amazing. Amazing. So, it is amazing. So much change. I want to, let's jump, before we get into all that change and what you've been doing. So what were you doing? What led you to the Beard Foundation? Actually, I began by volunteering, and okay. uh, I was writing at the time for I was editor, the first editor they actually hired at a publication called Art Culinaire, which still exists, although oh, right. it's got different owners. Yeah. Uh, and we used to write, and they still write about chefs around the world. And so many people came through the kitchens at the Beard House, as they still do, that I would volunteer either to see them if we were going or to touch base with them if they were coming, uh, if we had been and were coming back just to, to hang out with the chefs, know their food, say hello, and, and keep my hands in the game, as it were, in the kitchen. And, and so through volunteering um, at a time of uh, expansion and change, uh, I ended up there. And that was a fateful day December 17th, 1993. Wow, remember the date. <laughs> I do. Did you always know you wanted to work in food and yes. food? Okay. I, from the time I was a little kid, like three, I was obsessed with cooking and I watched cooking shows. I was, I, I realized recently I, I was a, a generation ahead of the trend now that there are all these, um, you know, MasterChef Junior things and all this yeah. stuff. I just was obsessed with food and cooking and would watch all the shows, which were on daytime then. There were no cooking shows on in evenings or on weekends, uh, except for maybe Saturday morning. And so I would sometimes pretend I was sick so I could stay home from school. Literally, I remember doing that uh, so I could watch the shows, which were intended mostly at that point for housewives. Not, not the, and in fact, to this day, home cooking 
cooking is still something I cherish and think is a really important aspect of food culture, which these days sometimes gets left out, even even now that more and more home cooking is more like chef cooking, there's been this blur. And I think there's some distinctions. We could talk about that another time. And, um, <laughs> but at the time, you know, and it's a, I'm a real product of, of my generation because at the time it just wasn't okay to become a chef. Uh, you know, from a middle-class family, Jewish in particular, which had something to do with it maybe, but not even, it just, you just didn't do that. And so the compromise for me and my family. And it's not like I had have I had parents who I was the fourth, the youngest of four, so they had no discipline. It wasn't wasn't like they had a heavy hand on me at the time my mom, my dad died when I was young. But it just she was just like, I don't think that's really what you want to do. And the compromise was hotel school. And so I went to Cornell oh, for hotel okay. school, which was turned out to be a wise compromise. You don't always uh-huh. want to take the advice of your parents or whatever, but it worked out really well. It That opened me to the possibilities of other things in food or food-related stuff. And in fact... During my senior year, I did a junior year abroad in Paris where, although I had worked in butcher shops and I had a small catering company in high school that actually had a soup company in, in when I was in college, um, when I got to Paris junior year, it was like, oh my God, this, this is food. How, how, it was just, I mean, a cliche eye-opening story. And then I came back for my senior year and, and they'd really beefed up a little bit. There was a food writing, a restaurant criticism course that was co-taught by a professor who is still a mentor and friend of mine, Tom Kelly, uh, and Mimi Sheridan, who was also still a friend and mentor of mine. Uh, yeah. So she would come up uh, once or twice a month. It was a weekly course and we would write re- reviews and she was, as, as she is today, strong, opinionated, whatever. We're still friends, Mimi and I, from that time. And that was the first time I thought, oh, writing, maybe there's something there for me in food. And I pursued that a little bit. I actually worked in restaurants in France and Italy after college um, through various programs for knowledge sake, knowing, you know, proving the kitchen wasn't exactly for me at that point. But you know, just being an awe. I worked, I did a stage at La Tour d'Argent, the great uh, traditional restaurant of the Terai family in Paris, arguably one of the oldest restaurants in Europe. And, um, and I just was met, I was, I was hooked. So that idea of studying, unpacking, understanding all of the, the, the details of the business of restaurants and cooking and that, but merging it with the culture and, and popular um, interest was really where my niche evolved. And shortly after that, after working at Art Culinaire for a couple of years, I found myself at the Beard Foundation where I've been ever since. That's fascinating. I didn't know that whole background. <laughs> Did you grow up uh, in New York area? No, I grew up in Toronto. I was okay. from this area. I was born in New Jersey. and my, my, I'm the product of, <laughs> we say, a mixed marriage, Brooklyn and New Jersey. Um, <laughs> but um, when I was two and a half, we, my family, they were looking for a place to raise four children that was more amenable to family life than New York City or the environs. And we ended up in the city of Toronto, which was a really great place to be. And I, my siblings are still there. Um, and the, one of the reasons I think it was a great place to be was because Toronto was a very young city, very different than it is now too, but also um, had this incredible uh, multicultural mosaic. So for us, you know, as kids, uh, although we didn't think of it as anything special at the time, we would celebrate birthdays at dim sum and we would, you know, roti was a common lunch thing like falafel or roti or, or whatever sandwiches, all this sort of stuff because of the multiculturalism of the city. And that, you know, I think that really that exposure to the possibilities of the diversity of food is really important for kids and people and humanity. Absolutely. And all that background, I'm sure I know, well, I'm sure it plays into what you do today. I mean, having all that experience is incredible. So when you started with the Beard Foundation, what was your initial role? And then, I mean, 
how did it progress? Uh, I, sure. I <laughs> Over mean, 20, well, <laughs> 25 years. Luckily, it's, it's been a, uh, a growing, somewhat amorphous organization. I was hired to be director of publications. Um, and at the time, the publications were a monthly newsletter, which was mostly about events. But that newsletter happened to have been created monthly by Dory Greenspan, who was a very dear friend of Peter Kump, the founder of the James Beard Foundation, a friend and student and colleague of James Beard himself, and also the founder of the Peter Kump Culinary School, which became uh, ICE, ICE, International yeah. Institute of Culinary Education. And, uh, and Peter had grand visions the whole time. He, he, was the, he was the reason the Beard Foundation exists. He, raised the mo- he had the idea. He raised the money. He got the world excited. He, he didn't have a master plan, but he had the, an entrepreneur's spirit. He had been a four-time entrepreneur in very different areas. And he, uh, and he made the Beard Foundation work. And he always wanted it to be uh, a media, a sort of cultural and media hub. And, and Dory had, it had grown from a favor for a friend to write about a couple of events every month to almost a full-time job because there were 30 events happening every month and and the publication went from two to four pages to 40 pages a month when I came on board and it was just more than she wanted and she had other things to do. Luckily, she did amazing, great things and continues to do them, right? Authoring some of the greatest baking books and cookbooks there are. And actually, she left to go to this new thing called the Food Network, which started um, just a few months after I started the Beard Foundation. So I was there in 93 in December and in March, the Food Network launched. And Dory, although she thought she was going to go spend time writing her own books, ended up writing a show called TV Diners, which um, was hosted by, this is such ancient history, it's funny, hosted by Alan Richman, uh, the great GQ, uh-huh. multiple James Beard Award winning restaurant critic um, of a certain generation. And um, Donna Hanover, I think, who I was... I remember yeah. that show. So and the Do- two of them talked... Yeah, yeah they yeah. ate around, uh-huh. they talked right, about... Right. I mean, it seems so quaint now when you look at what's on the Food Network and all of the overproduced stuff. But at the time, you couldn't even get it in New York City that when the Food Network launched it took a couple of years for yeah. it to be carried on a local station but but that so that transition I think that's something key about my tenure at the Beard Foundation is because that I was talking about this this morning with someone that opening of the of the Food Network was the first uh, point of true democratization of interest and engagement of food in this country, I think. And, and I would say in a very positive way, although at the time there was so much written by, about how horrible and degrading and whatever it was to food. And people are still writing that, but I actually think that, that the possibility of engaging, so it wasn't housewives making dinner for their families or their husbands, but it was a pastime, it was entertainment, it was all these sorts of things was the first step. And then the second major, most important step of in my career was the, the internet. And not even just, I mean, certainly the blogs and that piece, but really the smartphone phone and social media, which changed the way everyone relates to food. It changed what, you know, we've gone, went from consuming things we could afford to consuming photos of things that (laughs) everyone can afford. We went from, um, it was the smartphone, I think in my life, I, we one of the things we do at the Beard Foundation is communicate with chefs constantly. We, we are a nexus for chefs in all sorts of ways. And it was always really hard. It used to be phone. Then you would want a fax, but you would never get a chef on a computer. They didn't have desks. They didn't sit at computers. And so there was this whole period when you could never get a chef until they had a smartphone in their pocket. And then you could text them and you Texting. could yeah, social network <laughs> and call them in ways. And they were always online. And, and we've seen the sort of community, the global community of chefs, as as you know, as well as anybody, has just been completely connected so that a chef in Denmark knows what a chef in Japan, Tokyo is doing, knows what a chef in Denver is doing. And it's this amazing 
time. So that sort of broadening of interest and involvement and engagement of food, I think, has been part of what's kept my career so interesting and changing. And there's still a tremendous amount of work to do, and we can talk about this. And I spent some time this morning talking about this imperative we have to be more inclusive, to make the food world more diverse, to to, to not make it a white boys club, but to, to engage with women in some form of equity and people of color to have different voices. I think we still uh, a ways away, but we're certainly... Um, in this year, in particularly, in particular at the Beard Awards, which I know mm-hmm. you're at, we saw we saw some tremendous change there, and I, we're just all hopeful that that change will be will be able to carry it forward and and really have an impact on American cuisine. Wow, that was a lot, and that was and that was so well said, and I agree, and I think it will. Uh, let's take a little break here and come back, and we'll talk more about everything you're doing at the Beard Foundation, all the initiatives. Um, so stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound? What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Welcome back to Own the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Mitchell Davis. He's the Executive Vice President of the James Beard Foundation. So let's talk a little about all the initiatives and programs that you've overseen over the years. I mean, there's there's a lot of them. Yeah, so. there's a lot of them. And they, they arose for a period, what I would say opportunistically. Um, you know, we've always been a small organization with a huge impact and influence and reputation. And... Um, by small, I mean both in size of staff and also in budget. You know, at this point, we're in the 12 to $13 million range as an organization. And considering when we start to go into the programs, what we do, that's quite small. But we're only there recently. And we've ha- had a l- long history of various things. So, so when you look at all we do, we worked strategically with partners or with um, intended outcomes or funders to have... Uh, uh, some sort of huge impact. And and so we have a lot of things going around. And in fact, in this particular moment, and you'll understand when I get into a little of the detail, um, we're really on a strategic mission to hone in, to, to focus, to dig deeper on some few uh, strategic priorities, um, all intended to have the most impact, to apply the most pressure. And for, for some examples, um, you know, Greens is one of the th- earliest things that happened when I was uh, there in the mid-90s. Um, it was so clear because food at that time was an older person's profession. You know, mm-hmm. I joke that you used to have to put on a suit and tie and go pretend you were an adult to go into a restaurant when I first came to New York in the early 90s. And now all the adults put on T-shirts and sneakers 
bakers and go downtown and pretend they're kids, you know? And right. that transition's been really big. And we felt that at the Beard Foundation, I would be the youngest by 40 years at a table at a dinner. And some of what we did then was to create a, a, a program we call The Greens, which is, we call it 40, Foodies Under 40, which has changed now because there are so many foodies under 40, we, we sort of have to invert it a little bit. But we have a chapter in Chicago and we have a growing community of folks. And that was one of the early things that we did. But then... Um, Sort of as the as really the f- the celebrity of chefs grew and the the that broad inference, uh, interest I mentioned earlier in food grew, we realized that rather than just all have a great party and and eat and drink well, not that there's anything wrong with that, but we could perhaps use our ability to do that for some more significant change and to provide some meaning not just in the food world but also in the lives of chefs who, you know, when you Think about it. Now we think cooking is a glamorous profession. The reality, and you see this on TV, and you see this certainly in restaurants, is it's hard work, it's menial work, it's long hours, it's not very well paid, it's all these sorts of things. So, so, so something. Oh, it's also very repetitive um, in a way. I think people don't realize. Um, well, consistency. You need yeah, that. Yeah. You need it, and you just can't, even though everyone wants to have a, a restaurant where the, everything on the menu changes every day, it mm-hmm. just is not feasible. And guests, you know, like there's lots of reasons. So. We wanted to put some meaning into chef's life. And we started with, uh, we, we held a national conversation really to hear what role we could play as the Beard Foundation in improving um, the sort of advocacy or input of chef's voices in larger issues. And we actually, with a colleague of mine, Karen Karp, who was a consultant we worked with, we held roundtable conversations in about 15 cities around the country of the local food communities, farmers, chefs, food policymakers, whatever, just to hear what the issues were, what was bubbling up, what interested them. And we took that information and used it to produce a food conference, which became our food summit, um, which happened every fall and for the last 10 years. And it was, a, it was a, an attempt to shape some thought leadership around food with the specific lens of the culinary community. So there's tons, and we were just talking about this before we went on the air, there are tons of food conferences, there are tons of sustainability conferences, there are tons of conferences about agriculture and nutrition, all these sorts of things. But most of those um, do not come from the perspective of gastronomy, of the culinary world, of like the culture and celebration of food. And so our insertion into those conversations was, well, we take the perspective of the the cultural value of food what might be different when we think about sustainability or what decisions about agriculture might we make or nutrition you know is are nutrients enough or is it the the culture around those nutrients that that helps to produce a better diet or a better way of growing things and so that's where it began and and from that the food summit and and those convenings um, grew all kinds of things that we now call our impact programs. Um, they include the Chef's Boot Camp for Policy and Change. So we are about to embark on our 15th. Oh, no, we just, yeah, no, this weekend, I think, our 15th um, boot camp where we take a group of uh, 14 or 15 chefs away from all over the country, from almost all sorts of restaurants and, and food um, service enterprises. We take them for two and a half days to some beautiful farm somewhere, and we fire them up about the role they have, the importance of their voice, um, issues about food waste or uh, sustainability or sustainable fish or whatever the topic of the moment is, and we we teach them how to write a campaign. We show them how to have influence over their policymakers, perhaps how to start a food policy council in their homes, and we send them off to go advocate for a better food system. And we now have over 200 chefs who've graduated from this program, and they are they all cook at the Beard Awards this year. That was the, where the pool for the reception chefs came from. And they are from every city, every state, every type of thing and committed to good food and good people and, 
and good practices across the board. So that was one thing that grew it's out amazing. of that. Yeah, it's been yeah. a great thing. The challenge, of course, is 15 people, um, three times a year that we do a boot camp, you just can't get to that many. We actually have over a thousand people, on, chefs on the wait list to attend. So we then started to do these, what we call um, regional culinary labs or um, regional advocacy trainings. And so we go to a city and we gather 40 or 50 people from the community together and we do a small mini version of that. And and that's also created this sort of great network of, of chef advocates and people just a little bit more mindful of their food. On the other hand, we've used that that model of influence uh, for women and we're in the industry and trying to find equality and equity for women and, and other diversity issues and gender issues. And, and so we, for that, we, you know, we are in this moment, this me too moment right now, which, you know, all lights have been shining on the restaurant industry and Hollywood. It's funny. Those are the two things Hollywood and chefs seem to be, <laughs> you know, it, it speaks to the, the cultural mm-hmm. value of our industry. But for us as an organization, that was, it's a huge, it's a huge pressure moment. Luckily we have been working on uh, gender equality for six or seven years with programs um, for young uh, women chefs um, who we set up with mentors. It's called women's culinary leadership program. We've had a program we started two years ago that I helped to launch called Women's Entrepreneurial Leadership Program. So we take women chef owners at the other end of their career. So they own a business, they want to expand, they want to grow, and they need they need financial um, acumen, they need access to capital, all sorts of things. And we're trying to encourage that form of, of industry growth. So, right. and all of it, I think to me, and this is, this is, this is becoming more clear in this moment with the Beer Foundation, to me, these sorts of values are what I think will one day inform when someone says, and they ask us all the time, they ask me all the time, what is American food? What is American cuisine? Isn't it just Chinese and French and whatever, whatever? To me, ultimately, I think um, we'd like to say Good food for good is the motto of the Beard Foundation. That we are there to we are there to support good food, whether it's in the fin- finest restaurants, whether it's uh, for um, a single mom who's on food assistance, whether it's at a food truck that the kids hang out at in in Los Angeles. That good food is in all of those places, can be in all those places, and that that food is for good because by growing it properly, by giving everyone access to it, by valuing it in as a sort of um, not so much a right, but a, a, a cultural um, legacy and art, uh, uh, just a, a, a part of humanity, we, American food becomes our values. We like eat our values in some way. It is, it's a, it's a mixture. It's, it's never going to be French cuisine. It's never going to be yeah. codified in a book with six sauces from which all of these things, you know, like it's just not how we do things. We're about attitudes and we're about big ideas and we're about inclusion. And so, right. yeah. And I, it made me think about how the World Expo with the USA Pavilion, the theme of that was the America 2.0. And I just remember going to the, uh, to the pavilion and it was defining what, you know, yeah. what was American cuisine. I feel like, I don't know, that just made me think of that because I know that you well, worked that, on that. Yeah. That was a part of your, yeah, so I, your project. I, I put that project together, yeah. well, helped shape that project. It wasn't happening. And, and my our involvement through me was to say, like, well, that's at, exactly, that's where that thinking really began. What is American cuisine? I mean, even when I was at NYU, yeah, that yeah. was sort of the topic, and yeah. is the topic of everyone at NYU in the food studies program. It's like, well, what? Because it's hard to define. Right. It is, it is. but you, yeah. It's hard to define, but as you travel around the world, you see its influence. Like, mm-hmm. you, you know, sitting here looking at Roberta's, you, I cannot tell you, I have been in restaurants in Milan, in Tokyo, in Paris that are, Brooklyn, that are this. And yeah. that's our <laughs> influence. And it, you can't dry it. It's not so, it's not easy to say, oh, bechamel, it's the 
the it's the impact of American food or whatever it hot sauce or whatever. But we ha- are having this huge influence, and I I think what's represented by the tattooed chef and the distressed walls and the the menu that is everything's delicious, but it has never really been put together in that way before. All of those sorts of things, I think, are the values that we eat and that will one day become American food. It, right. And it will keep changing. Yep. And uh, and you also just, um, you have a new CEO at the Beard Foundation. So what is that? How's that going? <laughs> uh, well, uh, you should have her on the show. I uh, should. I would yeah. like to. I met her very briefly at the Beard Awards. Yeah. Um, so Claire. she is Claire yes. Reichenbach. She's great. She is not a food person. She comes from the media world. Her, she's British, and her background is uh, BBC, actually, where she was in charge of business strategy for BBC America. But what's what's great about the experience so far, it's only, give her credit, it's only been five months or four months at this time, uh, is she's comes with the perspective, she comes from the outside and can see all of these mm-hmm. parts that I'm describing that when you're inside sort of look like a lot of stuff. And from the outside, you just see um, this tremendous potential. And, you know, some of us have more opportunity to move in and out than others. And and when you talk to her, she's the one who's like, there are so, there's so much here. There is so much potential and there are so many assets. And if we lay the strategic focus on um, the things that we can do the best, that we can have the biggest impact on, that we can um, have the broadest um, reach of our resources, then we will change the world. And those are, that, I mean, that's the good food for good peace. And that's women, that's inclusion, that's sustainability. It's all these things that we want to eat and sort of the world we want to be. Excellent. Yeah, I'm going to have to reach out and have her on. <laughs> we can make that happen. Fabulous. Okay, we're going to take another break here, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to play my speedrun game, and then I have a bunch of interviews from the James Beard Foundation Awards. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. This is On the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Mitchell Davis. It's time for my speed round game. Okay. You're gonna, I was saying in the break, you're fast, so I know you're going to be fast at this. You're going to be great. It's, um, I name a couple things. You pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Vanilla. All right. See? <laughs> Quick. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat in. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Wine. <laughs> It's a little struggle there. Well, I like cocktails, but I drink more wine. Okay. <laughs> Tasting menu or a la carte? Oh, my God. That, neither of the above. I like an a la carte menu in which I eat everything. <laughs> okay. I like your it all. own, I like your to own a la carte yeah, tasting right. menu. Exactly. Got it. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Communal table. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? 
all-inclusive charge? That's a good question, and that's a complicated answer in my head. Yes, that's a whole show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about writing books or hosting a radio show? Oh, God, hosting a radio show. <laughs> Impressive, you've written four books. Panzanella or any other salad? Panzanella. The background, well, the background on that for listeners is in my class with you, you made a panzanella sal- <laughs> salad in one of the classes, and I, 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 it's never left my mind. Well, I <laughs> and love it was my, delicious. My, oh, that's nice to know. My husband will tell you, I, the two things I love in the world are bread and salad. So panzanella is like twice as much yeah, love. <laughs> it's, it, it is that. Okay, two more. Cheese plate or dessert? cheese plate I just came back from I like both too I came back from just came back from Paris and it's hard to say because the cheese is so good and the desserts are so good (laughs) true true it's a good problem Manhattan or Brooklyn Manhattan that's it that's the game you, yeah, you, you and got that through feels, it. They, that, so uh, the, the, they, I don't know if we have time for a quick story, but I had dinner at a great do. place. In, I, I feel I am under, I've under eaten my way through Brooklyn. There's so much here. And I used to love having a radio show because it at least got me to Roberto's, which I loved being aware of and eating in regularly. Um, but we recently, Saturday night, my husband and I had a Brooklyn night because we had tickets to see the Bowie exhibit. And I thought, oh, Chez Ma Tante. Everyone's talking about Chez Ma Tante. And we, it was 5.45 because our tickets were at 8.30. Yeah, and I thought, yeah. perfect. And we go. And it was lovely. It was great. It's a, it's a sort of bistro type place. And I've, I've been for you, brunch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so brunch was great. That's what I hear. Dinner was great. Um, we sat down and the server said, so are you from the city? <laughs> and we looked at each other. It's like, is it that obvious that we don't live in Brooklyn? I don't know what that meant. And, and I, we just thought that was hysterical anyway. So I think you just blended right in and she was just making conversation. I don't know. But um, that is funny. Okay. So for industry news, I have interviews I did at the James Beard Foundation Awards. But before, I didn't ask you my question yet from my last episode because I was thinking it ties into the Beard Foundation Awards. So I'm going to ask it now before we play back my, my interviews. So last week on episode 178, I had on Sabado Sagaria. He is the president of Bartaco, which is part of Barteca Restaurant Group, and he's formerly Union Square Hospitality Group's chief restaurant officer. So he wants to know, with so much changing in our industry, if you were to look into your crystal ball, because I'm sure you have one, and say five years from now, what new category would you add to JBFA, the James Beard Foundation Awards? And he was saying maybe it's something like quick service, or and he also noted that you did an awesome job at the awards. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. It's that is a question of someone who knows this industry really well. Uh, I I actually think, and this is not inside knowledge, but it's an aspiration that there will be some sort of recognition for chefs that um, walk the walk in terms of employee benefits or sustainability. Like, I don't know how we would do it. And I'm quite involved or we don't have any voting rights or anything in, in the awards. But but I feel like we have to find a way to bring the values that we are espousing in our other programs and have them be reflected in the awards in, in some way. And I don't know if it's overt or if it's, um, if it's somehow 
like this year, we, we didn't do anything except that suddenly there were more people of color and more women in the, mm -hmm. in the pool and in the nominees and in the winners. And so I feel like somehow we have to find a way, as I said earlier, for what we are reflecting as excellence in the awards and in everything we do, of including the values of respect and respectful environments and fair, waber, fair wages and fair labor laws and also sustainability in some way. And I don't know how. And five years would be a quick... <laughs> Well, we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens. I I I, I kind of joked that I was looking for the the restaurant publicist category, perhaps. Yeah. I don't know if that would really ever happen. Your caterers doubtful. are in line with you. There's a bunch of people who would like us yeah, to give awards. Yeah. 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 But we'll but, see. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're, I'm gonna play back my interview. So this was the 20th annual awards. It took place at the Lyric Opera House in Chicago on May 7th. It was the fourth year was in Chicago. Carla, Carla Hall was the MC for the second time. She did a fantastic job. The theme of the James Beard Awards was Rise to Rise Up. I was up in the mezzanine. I have four interviews that I'm playing back. One of them, unfortunately, was too loud to... to there was too much going on. The, if you're in the media room, there's, the, there's an opportunity to interview the presenters and the winners when they come in, but the, the show's still going on. So so there was too much background noise, but I just want to say I did interview Belinda Leong and Michelle Suas of Bee Patisserie. They won for Outstanding Baker, and I love their bakery. It's Me in too. San Francisco, and you need to go because it's fantastic. Uh, the other interviews I have are with Nina Compton. She won for Best Chef South down She's down in New Orleans. I have the MP Shift with Amy Morris, Anna Polanski, and Julie Narenberg. And they won for Best Restaurant Design or Renovation in North America, 75 seats and under. The project was Demaria, which is in New York City. And then I also spoke with Gavin Kaysen. He won for Best Chef Midwest. He's at Spoon and Stable in Minneapolis. And Jose Andres, who won Humanitarian of the Year. That interview, I have to say, it's going to be a little noisy because we were in the in the in the media room. But it's Jose, so how can how can we not listen to Jose? He's fantastic. Okay, so congrats to everyone. It's about eight minutes of interviews. Sit back and enjoy, and then we're going to come back and do my solo dining experience and the final question. All right, here we go. Hi, Gavin. Hi. Congratulations. Thank you. You just won Best Chef Midwest. Thank you. Yeah, it's incredible. Amazing feeling. It, it must... Well, you tell me. I mean, you won Rising Star... Ten years ago. Ten years ago. Yeah, 2008. And that was like... You know, it's, 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 really, it's really interesting because by definition of what you have to achieve from the Rising Star, part of that definition is continue on and mentor people and keep working your ass off and keep doing what you're doing and... You know, 10 years later, I'm able to achieve winning another Beard Award, but it's in such a different stance in my head. Like, the, the, the feeling is so different now because I, I, I appreciate more and I understand more of what it's taken to get here and to be at this point. I didn't think 10 years ago when I won Rising Star that I even had a chance in hell. I mean, I was up against Nate Appleman and Sean Brock to name 
just two of the people that were in that category. I didn't think I stood any chance in hell of winning. And so here we are again, 10 years later. It's awesome. Well, I, re I remember being at Lincoln Center and yeah. in the auditorium yeah. when you won and your speech and, and being so moved by it. And just so it was, you know, it was incredible that to, to be there when you won that and to be here now with, so this is for Spoon and Stable, which you opened yeah. in Minneapolis, yeah. um, which was also, you know, a big move when you totally. left New York. Yeah, it was a huge move. And it was one that, it's funny, I've learned since then that when people question what it is that you're doing, you've done, the, you've done something uh, that you've always wanted to do, which you've created a conversation because they're questioning what you're doing. They're, they're almost arguing against it. If it's too, <clears throat> if it makes too much sense, in some ways you're not creating that conversation. I never thought of that, thought of that before, but I definitely thought about it after the fact. Um, and you know, like my wife and I really made the consciousness. I, I remember her and I sitting down and saying like, where do we want to raise our kids? And we decided to go back home and, and raise them in Minnesota, my home state. And it took us two and a half years to answer that question. And once we answered the question, like we felt at peace for that. And we were ready to like move forward and just do the best that we could. Yeah, well, you've done that, and yeah. and you've opened more than one restaurant. Yeah, we opened Belcour about a year, a little over a year ago. Yeah, we have a bakery that's attached to that, and Diane Yang, who was nominated tonight as Best Pastry Chef, she's incredible, so I only see great things coming for her, which is awesome. Well, I'm thinking the weather, being that it's summertime's coming up, I might just book that you flight come. to Minneapolis before it gets cold It's 82 again. degrees tomorrow. It's yeah. like beautiful. No, it's been high on my list to get there, and a lot of that is because of you and your restaurants. Thank you. And I want to check them out and support. So. Yes, please do. We'd yeah. love to have you. Well, congratulations. Thank you. I'm super happy for you. Thank you. So Thanks enjoy. so much. I will. Welcome. Thanks. Well, first of all, congratulations. Thank you. I'm here with Nina Compton, your restaurant's Compare Lapin. Yes. In New Orleans. Yes, and I also recently opened a Buy What American Bistro. Oh, yeah. you're also in New Orleans. Yes, yes. So what does this award mean to you? Oh my God, I am, I am in complete shock. I, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, when you find you're nominated and you, you know, I was really dreading today because I'm like, what's going to happen? It's so stressful. Am I going to lose? Am I going to win? And I, I kind of conditioned my mind that if I, if I lose, it's okay. So I kind of like expected not to win. And when, when they called my name, I sat in the chair for, I would say, a good three seconds. <laughs> delayed reaction. A day, delayed reaction. I just sat there. And my husband and my um, my best friend, he's like, you won, you won. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, look, it, your name is on the screen. And I was just just floored because it, it's it's not just me. It's a whole team effort of having, you know, like making my team proud and just, you know, doing it for them. And it's not just an award for me. It's for the restaurants because they are, I'm, I'm like the mom, you know, and... We're probably going to throw a big party when we go back. As you should. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't wait to get back down to New Orleans yes. and come to your restaurant. Yeah. I've been a fan of yours since watching you on Top Chef and um, just watching your career. So, super happy for you. Thank you. Thank and, you so much. And how are you going to celebrate in Chicago is the question. I, we're just going to, we're not, <laughs> not going to sleep. We're just going to go all night. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank Very you so much. For you. Thank you. Pleasure. So. A little clink clink, so you know what we're holding here. Clink clink, congratulations. <laughs> I'm here with the MP Shift. I'm Anna Polonsky. 
Amy Morris. Julie Narenberg. And how did you come up with the, the MP Shift name and the concept? Well, the name is Morris Polonsky and shifting it. So shifting it meaning shifting perception. Um, shift is a slang for coming together. And um, Yeah, well, I, we didn't want to use studio or collective because every other design agency was doing that. So we were trying to find a way to be different. And also we really don't just see ourselves as designers. We, the strategy is a big part of what we do. So it was important to have a word that was encompassing all of it. Yes, well, I've been to Demaria. Yeah. And I love it. And so Demaria just won. Yeah. What do you think, why, like, how do you think you got that category? Like, how do you think you, you got people's attention? What was it about the design? Well, I mean, we had a great team that really believed in us, and that's so important. I think now that we have this award, we're going to have more clients that believe in our vision instead of um, yes. trying to push their, um, push their tr ideas of trends on us. We want to stay away from trends. We really work at getting to know the team we're working with. And then we try our very best to articulate their vision into the space. So a lot of times our ideas are down a path that are unfamiliar to the team, but really translate it well, but they're more thinking about the trends of the time and wanting to translate according to the trends. And we're trying to move them away from that and have a personality that's unique to them. And De Maria allowed us to do that very well. And yeah, we do it all. That's really why we don't want to have a signature style is we want to be able to work with small independent chefs or with big developers. It's always the same process anyhow. So. Thank you. How are you going to celebrate tonight? I mean, we're going to dance our booties off tonight. <laughs> As you should. <laughs> yeah, we hope there's a dance floor somewhere because we're coming. Well, great. Well, congratulations. Really thank happy you. For yeah, you. thank Thanks you so much. Us. It's such an honor. Really. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, you know, it's it's very humbling. Uh, I, I, I this is not so much really about me, the person. This is about the many people that the many people that maybe happened. Where was a family of chefs of Puerto Rico, of men and women that decided not to stay at home and and come together and cook. And I was only the lucky guy that kind of I was leaving them, but. But I was just one more guy. Uh, happens we did it in California, we did it in Houston, uh, but was not nothing I could achieve. It was not again for the amazing people. No, and again, remembering that we have hundreds of thousands of people in America and around the world uh, doing humanitarian work without being interviewed or being on TV or being on a magazine or receiving an award. And they do it uh, day in and day out with the biggest heart. So, you know, I feel people are asking me, man, uh, why you don't celebrate or you seem happier? I'm sure I'm happy, but, but you know, I, I think it's also prudent to be humble on, about it and only understand that, you know, uh, hurricanes are 20 days away, that just we got the volcano in Hawaii and people are going to be suffering. And uh, there's always going to be somebody in need of help. So uh, it's humbling. I love it. I'm very proud and honored by it. But uh, but we, we cannot celebrate much because the next mission is around the corner. Yeah, 
Yes, so well said. And I'm just, I, I mean, I think on behalf of so many people, though, we look at what you do. You're a leader, and and you are extremely humble. And um, I admire what you're doing. And, uh, yeah, there's more work to be done. But, you know, celebrate the moment because you. you deserve it. Thank you very much. And we're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. It's time for my solo dining experience. This week, I decided to flash back to when I was in Chicago, since we're doing the whole James Beard theme here in the awards. So here's the rundown of my experience at Belmore. The location, 564 West Randolph Street, West Loop, Chicago. The concept aiming to define the category of artistic American in both cuisine and decor. The chef and partner, Jimmy Papadopoulos, who's formerly of Bohemian House, in partnership with Boca Restaurant Group. So why did I go? Because I was in Chicago, and I heard really nice things about this new opening. My experience. So I went for lunch on Tuesday before I was flying out back to New York, I had a reservation for one. Uh, I sat in a very spacious, cozy, round booth. The staff was lovely. I felt like a lady who lunches. <laughs> so what did I get? I had Kona Kampachi Tatar with shoestring potatoes, citrus ponzu, and basil. And I also had carrot toast with roasted carrot, smoked tofu, pistachios, mint, and lime. My take? Kampachi, the kampachi, which is yellowtail, was super fresh. Clean flavors, beautifully presented. I thought it was a little overpowered with all the potatoes, these shoestring potatoes that were in it, but it was delicious and very tasty. I loved the carrot toast, it, carrot puree on top that it was a lot of bread. So I ended up, I was kind of scraping some of the carrot off the top. Um, it was a nice change from avocado toast, which we see everywhere. And it was also a beautiful presentation. So the ambiance, the design is had a very sleek interior featuring brass details with natural elements, plush, plush blush sofas, and nostalgic wood and wicker seating. And yes, I got that from their website. Perfect for a relaxed and elegant meal without pretension. Interesting tidbit. Belmore is the 15th restaurant of Rob Katz and Kevin Boehm of the Boca Restaurant Group, and it has been it has been receiving some favorable rev reviews. There was one I saw on the Chicago Reader recently. Personal fun fact. On Monday, I was at the Welcome Conference in New York City, and Kevin Boehm was one of the speakers. And he gave a really great talk about restoration of your soul. And the conference theme was restoration. The cost was $23. That's not including tax or gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, I would. Their website is belmorechicago.com. 
I got to stop at the $23 for lunch in a lovely restaurant when I, you know, eat my salad in a box at my desk and it's 30 <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, these were both like Still. under the smaller plates, right. but the, the toast was actually, I, I couldn't eat it all. It was Amazing. filling. Yeah. And it was, it was lovely. I would, I would recommend it. Nice. So, and you yes. just did. And fact. I did. <laughs> there you have it. Okay. It's time for the final question. So my next guest is Howie Kahn. He is a writer and contributing editor at the Wall Street Journal. He's a James Beard Award winner. He's also the host and editor-in-chief of Print Street Podcast. And he is uh, he's the co-author of this new book that came out called Sneakers, which is a New York Times bestseller. I don't know how I'm going to tie sneakers into this whole show, but I have to ask him about it. But it's up. To, it's well, your turn. You, what would you like to ask him? You've Mitchell? led into my question because I've known Howie a long time from when he was at GQ. He was actually a fact checker when I used to do some writing there um, on some of my stories. And what I wondered, as I said earlier, the sort of world of of fine dining has casualized, and chefs now wear don't wear white coats and uh, check pants and black work leather work shoes. They wear t-shirts or plaid shirts and aprons and sneakers. And so I wonder if ha- after, if Howie can put his two worlds together and sort of look at a chef's shoes, let's say sneakers and know anything about how he or she cooks. I, I, I'm curious if there's a, there's an inner calculus that comes from one's personality reflected in one's sneaker choice and one's food. That is fascinating. <laughs> I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Or he just says, no, it's just their taste in sneakers. Yeah, right. well, <laughs> What's comfortable? Famously, there was an article once in the New York Times about Jean-Georges who wore Prada shoes, for instance. Okay. We're in a different moment, I think, than that. Let's see. Yeah, and, and I feel I don't know anything about sneakers besides like what I wear to go <laughs> running in. But um, yeah, I will ask. Good. So that's the show. I wish we had four more hours. I really do. Uh, you're you're fascinating. Everything about you, your whole career. I'm honored to have known you and have met you when I first moved to New York. It really helped launch my career, and I'm very grateful. So well, thank, thank you. you. It's been a real honor and a pleasure to be here with you, and so great to see the success of this show and your career. Thank you. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing what's next with with you and the Beard Foundation and and any any new books. Uh, just ideas. Uh, yeah, I'd love to do one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's been a long time. In your spare time. Yep. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Mitchell. Thanks. Bye. My guest today has been Mitchell Davis. He's the executive vice president of the James Beard Foundation. His website is jamesbeard.org, and you can follow him on social media at Kitchen Sense and at Beard Foundation. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My website's BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. All of our shows are archived on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks again to Mitchell. Thanks to the James Beard Foundation and Magrino Agency and everyone I interviewed at the James Beard Awards, Belinda Leong and Michelle Suas of Bee Patisserie, Nina Compton, the MP Shift, that's uh, Amy Morris, Anna Polanski, and Julie Nirenberg, Gavin Kaysen, and Jose Andres. And congratulations to all of you. And many thanks to my show's engineer, Vitor Hurst. He helped me put together all those interviews, the editing, and I'm very grateful. So that's it. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with another live show. I hope you'll tune in then. And thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye.
for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. But the seeds